What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, some people call me a space cowboy. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. I'm Joe McCormick. Today we're going to talk about space property. Because, you know, space property. We've talked about like asteroid- the properties of space. Maybe, you know. But we've talked about asteroid mining, right? Yeah, we we've did talked that. about lunar colonies. We talked about a Martian colony, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so here's the thing. We've got this technology that's developing at a fairly rapid pace that's making this more and more, you know, something of a reality. It's not just the stuff of science fiction. We are getting to the it's point where... It's not to the 20 to 50 years part right now. Right now, it's getting a tiny bit more concrete. Yeah, like talking about there. there's one company in particular that plans to have a colony on Mars in 10 years. Whether that happens or not we'll is another... We'll see. Yes. Uh, yeah, or, or people, I think the more realistic thing is the asteroid mining. I think that that's going to yeah. seriously happen within the next 10 years. Right. So, uh, but... That raises another question. So here on Earth, we've got 
countries and states. You mm-hmm. know, we've got these sovereign, sovereign nations, sovereign nations, right? They have they have rules to guide themselves. Constitutions. They've got borders that separate them from everybody else. Right? Frequently physical ones made of rivers and oceans. Here's or a walls. really weird thing. Okay, if I want to go like into a field and build a house there and live in it. For some reason, I've got to pay people money. Yeah, yeah. Unless you somehow have come into ownership of that land already, then someone else owns that land and they probably want some cash for you to be able to shack up there. Well, how did they get the right to ask me for cash to build a house on their field? We developed something called property laws. Property laws. Property laws. Well, we didn't, but... (laughs) Well, no, not personally. If we had, then I'd have a lot more property. Uh, But no, the... uh, Human beings in general, in a way of trying to make sense of the fact that we got lots of people and there's lots of really awesome land out there that everybody wants. And there's some less awesome land that yeah. nobody wants. <laughs> right. And how do we determine who gets what? And property laws kind of came out of that. And they've evolved over time. I mean, gr- sometimes they evolve very slowly and sometimes quite rapidly, depending upon the, the era we're talking about. But typically what it amounts to is you have a plot that you say belongs to me and I I can do what I want with it, and I have a major degree of control over it so that I can, like, say that other people can't come on it and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Right. And And I've asked a government to help me enforce the fact that it belongs to me. Sure. Sure. And generally it goes, you know, uh, enough into the ground for you to build a foundation for any buildings that you want and enough Mm -hmm. into the air that you can, you know, build a good couple of stories up there. Depending upon whatever the, the... the regulations are in your area. But then beyond that, it pretty much doesn't belong to you. It belongs to whatever country you happen to be in. Okay. But um, let's say that this house I want to build is not in a field I found somewhere. But let's say I fly a shuttle up to the moon and land and want to build a house there. Well, first of all, shuttles don't go to the moon. But if you were to fly a capsule okay, over to the yeah, moon and you wanted to buy, right, build a house thanks. there. Okay, you're correct. Your, your story uh, is ludicrous. <laughs> let's say I land a landing vehicle on the moon okay. and I get out and I want to build a house to have live out my uh, my wonderful social life on the surface of the moon. Yeah. We have no pedantic problem with that. Yeah, However, okay. legally. Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, here's who, the, do, who do I pay? I guess I've got to pay somebody, right? Well, uh, you wouldn't pay anybody because there's no one to pay right now. See, here's the thing. How do we determine who gets access who gets the rights to property in outer space because who does outer space belong to i mean humankind as it turns out well basically. yeah based upon some some uh some uh old laws that were written but well no s- some real laws okay so here's the problem okay. we've imagined yeah. um so let's say i go and i and i land on the moon and i uh, build my house there in the middle of a big uh you know, field on the moon. Yep. <laughs> I Those guess. lunar fields home, that home, we know so much Home on about. the moon. Uh, and uh, somebody else comes along and says, no, I want to live there. And they knock my house down and they build their own. What, what's to stop them? Well, see, that's the thing is that, you, you know, normally if we were talking about a person from a specific country going and claiming something, because you particularly are a citizen of that country, it would be seen as something called uh, national appropriation. Like, it's the idea that it's not you claiming that spot. It's the United States. And that's where we get into a problem. You see, when the space race was kicking off in the 50s and 60s, there was something called 
the Cold War. <laughs> you guys remember the Cold War? Yeah. I remember Not personally. Oh, well, gosh. I mean, have, I, do. I mean a little bit. I, I have mean. maps in my house that say Soviet Union on uh, East, and, sure? okay. East and yeah, West, yeah, East and West Germany. Yeah. Uh, so the, during the Cold War, you had two major superpowers that were uh, ramping up their space exploration uh, uh, industries. And that's the United States and the former Soviet Union. So those two superpowers were on a race, really. It was, it was almost for bragging rights, but moreover, it was also to prove that they had the capability of doing something like a long-range nuclear strike. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's all about if I'm able to fire a, a, a rocket that can get all the way into outer space, then I can also fire a rocket that has a bomb that on get it all, all the way, way to, to your you. country. Yeah. Right. So that that's where the space race came from. Well, that that meant that you had this, this mounting escalation of, uh, of competitiveness between the United States and the Soviet Union. And as it became closer and closer to a reality that one of these two nations was going to make a landing on the moon began to make the rest of the world say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should set up some rules here. Yeah. So in a uh, very, what I would say, a remarkable act of, of coming togetherness. Yeah. Um, of uh, Really, it's kind of a more of an act of we're all scared out of our pantsness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we actually came up with something, not we as in us here, but humans came up with something We've called been very busy. now known as the Outer Space Treaty. The, the official full name uh, as adopted by the UN General Assembly was the Treaty on Principles governing, governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. Yes, that was in 1967. It was actually yeah. partly based on an earlier piece of legislation that mm-hmm. was drafted in 1959 called the Antarctic Treaty. Yeah. Now, the Antarctic Treaty was... Uh, designed to prevent the militarization of the Antarctic, saying that you no governments could build military facilities on the Antarctic. It, it could be used just for scientific research, but it was meant so that people wouldn't go and claim Antarctic as part of their nation to give them some sort of uh, military superiority advantage, right? or advantage. And so they used that as sort of the the guideline for drafting this 1967 treaty. Yeah, um, and so the treaty includes a bunch of... Uh, Different uh, articles that establish things like freedom of exploration, freedom mm-hmm. of uh, scientific experimentation. Right. Um, it's it's basically like spaces for humankind. It's free for everyone to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not subject to national appropriation. Right. Uh, no nukes, y'all. Yeah. Uh, no nukes in yeah. space. Forbids yeah. weapons of mass destruction mounted on the moon, celestial bodies, or in orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, celestial bodies should be used for peaceful purposes. It also comes up with some sort of rules of etiquette for international cooperation. So it's a, it has like uh, it says like oh if foreign astronauts crash land in your country, you're supposed to return them safely to their to their own country of origin. Okay. Um, it says that I think astronauts shall not attack each other, something like that. That, that astronauts are, are envoys of all humankind. Yeah. Um, uh, however, that countries are responsible for their citizens in space. Yes. Um, and, uh, also liable for damage. Mm-hmm. And also that they should generally avoid doing that damage. Right. Okay. But so when it comes to space property and my question about building a house on the moon, it, they actually have, uh, something that seems somewhat relevant. Article two of the Outer Space Treaty specifically says, 
Outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. But so another, what that means is, like, the United States right. can't go up and say, the moon is ours. Yeah, I claim this for Spain. Yeah. yeah you, can't, you can't do that. You or can't, they can't even claim part of the moon as theirs. Right. And essentially, the argument here is that uh, you cannot have any nation laying claim to any sort of celestial object, not just the moon. Asteroids, uh, other planets. Right, right. Duck, you know, duck, duck, duck Dodgers of the twenty fourth and a half century had no right to right. be. Out well, he, there. he claimed it for Earth, so oh, okay. that that might be okay. all right. You're right, but sure. uh, but yeah, you can't you can't lay claim to to anything uh, on a national level. Now that has opened up some debate about the the spirit and the letter of the law as it comes to private ownership, right? Well. I would say that since it's got that other proposition in there that says that countries are responsible for the actions of their citizens, mm-hmm. that that anyone who does anything in space is a representation of their country, and that therefore... Well, there, yeah. there are those arguments, yeah. Well, okay, so this is interesting. Generally, people have interpreted this treaty to mean... And, oh, and by the way, I mean, so it was ratified by pretty much everybody. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the United so Nations, right. Yeah. We, we gave it the thumbs up. It, yes. It is a law we abide by now. Because there's another um, one we're going to talk about in a minute where we did not do that. Right. Um, so lots of people interpreted this Article 2 of the uh, Outer Space Treaty to say, okay, nobody can claim property rights to anything in space. But, as we established before, that Article 2, the language could be interpreted as ambiguous because what it specifically says is that it's not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty. And it doesn't specifically say that no person or company could claim the land. Um, And this brings us to a dude uh, who calls himself a head cheese of the company... (laughs) Oh, no. Lunar Embassy. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Dennis Hope. Uh, and Dennis and he Springs Eternal. This yeah. is this is a fun dude. Uh, so so around 1980 <laughs> or so, from what I understand, he filed a claim for ownership with the UN for for the moon. Yeah, let me read a little bit from the uh, frequently asked questions page of his company's website. Uh, he says, uh, in 1980, a very bright, young, and handsome Mr. Dennis Hope went to his local U.S. governmental office, that's capitalized, don't know what that means, for claim registries, the San Francisco County seat, and made a claim for the entire lunar surface, as well as the surface of all other eight planets in our solar system and their moons, except the Earth and the Sun. Obviously, he was first taken for a crackpot until three supervisors, two floors, and five hours later, the main supervisor accepted and registered his claim. Uh, after this, he, he claims that, so there he staked his claim with his local government office for the moon, mm-hmm. uh, and afterwards mailed letters to the Soviet Union and to the United Nations announcing to them that the moon was now his, uh, and to see if they had any problem with that. Oh, right. He basically said, um, if this isn't cool, guys, write me back. Yeah. And no one bothered to do it. They didn't write him back. Which, uh, he argues is the, the, essentially the, the, them saying, signing off on it. Yeah, they, they gave the, the sort of silent consent. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. like saying, like, universe, if you don't want me to eat this donut, <laughs> annihilated <laughs> before I can touch my mouth yeah. and then eating it. You know. well, Absolutely. So I like the idea of him going to the San Francisco County because that would be kind of like, 
going to the mayor of your city and saying, like, I'm claiming Antarctica. You and know? San yeah. Francisco has a long history of kind of, uh, you know... Uh, Being like, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Do it. Well, emperor, the Emperor Norton. This, was- <laughs> but by the way, another thing. Now, I don't want to say we know this to be false, but also this is his story as yes, he tells it. I'm true. not even sure the extent to which this should be considered reliable. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but so, yeah, so he uh, sent those letters off. After this, he claims that, uh, and I don't know what to make of this either, but he claims uh, that he... He added a copyright to his work by the U.S. Copyright Registry Office. Um, so with his claim to claim and copyright registration certificate from the U.S. government in hand, Mr. Hope became what is probably the largest landowner on the planet today. I don't know what copyright has to do with, with the moon. Yeah, that, that seems to be that seems to be this fallacy that somehow getting one thing ratified in one way by a government agency ends up legitimizing the claim. That's not the case. Right. Like if I write a book where I end up conquering the entire world and I get it published and it's under copyright, that doesn't mean I actually then have the right to tell everybody what to do, despite the fact that I keep trying. He may be confused about what government office he contacted or something. I don't know. I think he's confused about governments in general. (laughs) He he did go on to set up a, a democratic republic nation called the Galactic Government, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And yeah. uh, wrote like or wrote Galactic a Galactic con- Republic something. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a constitution and put it up online and yeah. claims to have diplomacy with thirty nations. So it, it would sound like okay, we're just dealing with somebody who's got a funny website or something, but he's making money on this, y'all. Well, so, so supposedly he set this up because he had just gotten divorced, was really strapped for cash, and thought, you know, no one's selling the moon right now. How can I sell the moon? That's what that that is an interview that I've read with him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that that, that I read that interview too. So yeah, what he's been doing for since about 1980 apparently is selling parcels on the surface of the moon that are each about the size of a football field, mm-hmm. um, and he prices them for about twenty bucks each. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to send him your your shiny new twenty dollar bill, you can get a football field sized parcel on the mm-hmm. moon. The largest uh, piece of property he sells is continent sized, uh, yeah. um, which costs some uh, uh, thirteen million dollars. Yeah. Um, the question I have is how many people have actually bought this? And I have to be totally honest and say the numbers I've seen are pretty high, but I am very skeptical about them, especially because of the strange increase and decrease I've seen, I've seen across chronology. Like, for example, there was a National Geographic article about Dennis Hope in 2009 that reported he claimed to have sold parcels on the moon and other planets to at least 3.7 million people. Uh, Two years earlier, a short article uh, on Discover Magazine Online 2007 claimed that Hope had sold 4.25 million uh, to 4.25 million. Maybe people. he had just bought back um, 0.5 million. <laughs> and those are by no means. The, I mean, if you look all, I see weirdly vast ranges of different numbers of claimed customers and amounts of property sold. You would think that you'd have to keep pretty good records of that because I would imagine the IRS has something to say about it. <laughs> well, funny, on his frequently asked questions, he's got a little question there about how should I, uh, you know, Write this off. claim this on my taxes? And the answer is like, I don't know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but, yeah uh, he, he, he claims that his government is trying to join the International Monetary Fund um, and that you know, their, their, their currency is the reserve of helium three on the moon, which is some six quadrillion dollar reserve. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so it's so, based on the helium standard. Okay. Right. But <laughs> here's the question. 
we have to start wondering, like, okay, on one hand, this seems so funny, but, like, well, wait a minute. I mean, it, it, is this legit in any way? So there, there's been people who have tried to address that, right? Yeah. There was, there, a, there was another treaty in 1979. Right. Uh, okay, so uh, we should discuss that, often known as the Moon Treaty. Right. That's the shortened version, although, it, to be fair, it involved not just the moon, but all celestial objects. Right. Yeah. And and I, I do, you know, this was back in 1979. I do want to point out that um, that Mr. Hope is not the first person who has attempted to do this. I read no, a, no. I read a 1949 Science Illustrated article in which one James T. Mangan uh, formed a, a nation of celestial space and contacted the secretaries of state of 74 nations plus the UN about gaining recognition because he intended to sell um, Earth-sized chunks of space off at about a dollar a lot, nice. um, which he called a new, bold, immodest idea. <laughs> um, um. Yeah. Since, the, since he hasn't become a household name, I'm going to assume that that did not ultimately go very far. Well, no, I, they created this treaty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So in 1979, the uh, commonly known as the Moon Treaty, it was called uh, officially the Agreement Governing Governing the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. Uh, specifically, the part that's really relevant is uh, Article 11, Section 3. It says, Neither the surface nor the subsurface of the moon nor any other part thereof or natural resources in place shall become the property of any state, international, intergovernmental, or non-governmental organization, national organization, or non-governmental entity, or of any natural person. So in that in that sense, they're saying... The space belongs to everyone yeah. and no one. So no, you nobody can own anything whatsoever. Right. right. Unless we get sentient cats who can argue the letter of that law. I so, think. But the yeah. problem is the Moon Treaty failed. It right. was uh, ratified only by some small number of nations, none of none whom of them are were, were major spacefaring yeah. nations at the time. Yeah. Uh, and In fact, I don't, I don't think any any country that has launched a manned space mission at all ha- uh, has ratified it. I don't know if I would say that, but definitely it wasn't the United States, Russia, China, any right, of those. Right. Um, but, um, okay, so here's the question. Uh, why? Why didn't anybody ratify it when everybody was down with the Outer Space Treaty? Well, well the, for one thing, the United States big and a big argument out of the US was that this means that we would not be able to take advantage of things like no one would be able to take advantage of things like asteroid mining or yeah. or lunar mining or anything along those well, lines. Lunar mining in this specific case. But yeah, in this specific section of this article but, was but, about but, the moon. But, but, but that if but that if this got ratified then what other laws follow? See, it, it was based upon something else called the Law of the Sea Treaty, which was also about things like uh deep sea mining and it the Law of the Sea Treaty had suggested that there be a new agency that would be an international agency that would oversee this kind of stuff, and that in fact all of uh, much of the benefit of any mining operation would go toward this agency and not necessarily to whomever actually operated the mining process. So that means that miners would be taking that enormous risk of mining and getting only a portion of the profits from that, the rest going to this other agency that has just been made to oversee it. And that's the big argument that most of the nations that refused to ratify it were saying. They were saying, wait, why would we say to the people who are taking a, uh, you know, a, a, a life-threatening risk to mine this stuff. Just that, government employees right. who get a government salary. Right. 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 Yeah, you're not right. actually going to get the benefit from all this hard work you're doing. Right. Yeah, right. I think one major problem is that essentially the Moon Treaty, uh, it would dictate 
establishing international control of a regime to sort of create resource extraction policies in the future. Right. And um, there was another fellow, since we're talking about, you know, people who have laid claims, you guys have heard of uh, Gregory Nimitz? I know you heard about him. Yeah. Too. I this think is, so, no. So there's a, an asteroid called 433 Eros. All right. So this asteroid was one that NASA planned on visiting with a spacecraft. And in fact, they did do that back in 2001. They had a spacecraft land on the asteroid. A year prior to the spacecraft landing on the asteroid, Mr. Nimitz laid claim to 433 Eros and then sued NASA and the U.S. government for landing on his asteroid. Now, the reason he did this was not because he was trying to get money from the government. He actually wanted to generate a conversation about space property because in his, what he was saying was that traditionally, if you look over the history of the human race, uh, ownership you might have heard that possession is nine-tenths of the law when it comes to ownership. That other one-tenth is a claim. So he's saying that by claiming he's already got one-tenth, uh, he just has to take possession to have full ownership. But the claim has been realized in times past as a valid means of expressing ownership over something. And that once you take possession of it, then you have full ownership of it. So he says, look. In history, this is what we've always said, that if you lay a claim to something and then you take possession of it, you own it. So I've laid my claim on that. Are you telling me that that's not valid? Because if you are, that's going against all the tradition of property law that we've established so far, and we need to establish something new. For example, when Europeans showed up on the American continents and said, this is ours, yeah, yeah. we have a flag. Yeah, and the Native Americans didn't speak European, so they didn't count. Right, so, <laughs> exactly. Also, they had very uh, poor immunity to smallpox. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, As do most of us. Yeah. Uh, the uh, so the moon would be kind of different in that it's not inhabited, and we wouldn't be taking it from anybody right. except from all the other people who have just as much right to it as we do, according to this right. international treaty. Right. So it it did lead to another discussion about a different approach. There's another group uh, called the the Space Settlement Institute, so mm-hmm. based out of New York. And uh, they wanted they they've proposed the Space Settlement Prize Act, and this would require the United States to recognize and legally support land ownership claims for any private entity that has established a permanently inhabited settlement in space. The idea being that if they have managed to do that, if they have managed to actually create a permanent settlement, the U.S. would recognize that as such, and it wouldn't be. Uh, a United States property, it would just be a property that these people own, that the United States recognizes their ownership. So the idea is that this would be working around that national appropriation uh, restriction that was in the 1967 treaty, saying we're not saying the U.S. should be able to go out and claim the moon. We're saying that if a private organization creates the technology that makes it possible and and funds this and then goes and builds a settlement, that that will become something official. Yeah, or theirs. Theirs, yeah. It doesn't belong to the U.S. Yeah, this seems to relate to something that I think is uh, a part of Earth property law, which is this idea idea of sort of intent to occupy yeah. like if you want to claim a piece of land that's unowned you um you can't just like say it's mine you also have to like make an investment pretty much in like getting there so yeah if we were to apply that kind of thing to space i, I can see how that might make sense so so basically you'd be sort of agreeing with mr hope here 
on the 67 treaty not applying to private entities, but also saying that what he's doing won't work because you're not actually going and setting up residence there. You're just sort I mean, anybody can say, oh, I own the moon. Right. Exactly. You have to be, you have to demonstrate that you're actually building something there. In fact, uh, they, they went on, the, the group went on to propose some more guidelines that would actually, uh, fill out some more rules. For example, whatever, thing was built there would operate under its own rules and laws. It would not necessarily, it wouldn't be seen as U.S. law because then it would be, again, an argument about national appropriation. What happens on the moon stays, stays on, on the, the moon. moon. Yeah, that's, so, hey, so, so, in so Futurama, the they make casinos on the moon. Like so. Space Wild West yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. And, uh, they, they had suggested that, uh, the way it would work is the first claim on the moon could be no larger then 600,000 square miles, which is, amounts to about 4% of the lunar surface. But every subsequent claim would end up being 15% less landmass. So in other words, every time the next claim is made, you subtract 15%. That's the maximum that could be claimed. And uh, that way you end up, you know, the, the, the companies that are really motivated to truly, cause they imagine that this would be a company thing, obviously not an individual thing, but the companies that are truly motivated to go and do this sort of stuff will, uh, have an incentive to do it, not just from the fact that there is stuff out there, like the helium three that's out there that could be really valuable, but that they'll have the legal, uh, uh, basis to do this without fear of someone um, counter countermanding that, saying no, no, no. That, oh, right, that right. Someone who brings more, you know, wire fencing up with right. them <laughs> being <laughs> well, able that, to stake a then, bigger claim. On top of that, they would be able to seek recognition from the UN uh, under this act, and also, uh, oh, so. The moon would be 600,000 square miles for the first claim. Mars is 3.6 million square miles, which is, you know, about like the United States. Uh, that's 6% of Mars's surface area. And then, um. Well, you don't have oceans to deal with. You've got, you've got a lot of land. It's harder to get to Mars. Yeah. It is harder to get to Mars. Uh, and it's then, a lot bigger than the moon. So one other thing that's interesting, this also applies to asteroids, which goes back to Mr. Nimitz, who had claimed that that one asteroid. Uh, they said that if it's a large asteroid, it's going to be the same rules as the moon. 600,000 square miles is the initial claim. If it's less than 1 million square miles in surface area, then you can claim the entire asteroid. Uh, if you essentially it's you know, first come, first serve, really. Uh, and it, the other part of the argument is that even without this this. Um, the specific language being ratified, even if it's not ratified, there's already precedent for at least being able to sell the stuff from space on Earth. And the reason why I say that is because both the Soviet Union and the United States had trips to the moon and brought stuff back. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union ended up selling some of that stuff. So they sold property that was from not not like property, but they sold stuff that was gathered from the moon and brought back to Earth and then sold that. So there's some that that's at least enough of a precedent so that companies that are looking at asteroid mining can feel reasonably confident that they can go out and get this stuff without having too much hassle because there's already they can already say, right. no, wait, the Soviet the world did not object when the Soviet Union sold those moon rocks. Therefore, we can go to this asteroid and mine it. We're not planning on staying there. We're not claiming the asteroid. We just want the stuff that's on it stuff, or yeah. in. It. I think there's also some question about whether an asteroid 
of of certain size at least should be considered a celestial body at all. Sure. Like because okay, so you'd probably say like Ceres, uh well that's pretty big. Yeah. You know, that that's a celestial body. It's like a moon or something. But if you have that's an asteroid if you have an asteroid that's about the size of like a house, is that really a celestial body? Well see, the now we're getting into arguments about the semantics, like when do you call a hill a mountain and when is yeah. a mountain a hill? But but this matters because the, the oh, space sure. treaty is about it's about celestial bodies and stuff. And and so it doesn't pre- prevent us from returning with resources. Would a small enough asteroid just on the whole be considered a resource? I don't know that if a small enough a- I don't I don't know that most companies would look at a small asteroid and think of that as a viable option to mine because you might well, not get enough out of it for it to, to make, make it the worthwhile. mining operation worthwhile. I mean, I think it would have to depend on the asteroid. Okay, so maybe not house size, but what about uh, the size of a very large building? Yeah, you I don't know. know. Is an asteroid I mean, it, like that a celestial body? It, it all it all depends upon uh, how – some of these definitions are going to happen after, after we've already done stuff. And in fact, that's what a lot of experts are saying is that – while right Once now, someone actually does it, we'll go. Well, oh, let's get a law for that. Well, and, and and they point out a lot of people will point out that a lot of laws follow behind technological and scientific discoveries, right? So we discover stuff, we start putting it into use, then governments start to catch up, and then they end up putting in whatever restrictions or regulations they deem are necessary to make sure that it's. Uh, a fair and safe uh, process. And sometimes there's a lot of growing pains. You know, we, we've talked, uh, I can't recall if we've talked on here or not about, you know, copyright law and the digital age and whether or not, you know, what, what sharing accounts for when you don't have a physical copy of the media. Sure. I mean, you know, we've seen the same thing hold true in multiple industries. The Internet has obviously made a huge impact on society and culture and law. And a lot of the laws had to catch up. In fact, some would argue are still catching up to what the Internet is capable of doing. I assume we're going to see the same sort of thing once we start seeing uh, asteroid mining go from this is what we're planning on doing to this is what we did. You know, once we get to that point, that's when we're going to see this actually be addressed. And I also think that it's not not the case where any treaty that's been signed in the past will not eventually be overturned by something else or be clarified in some way so that it ends up allowing for certain cases or, you know, under specific guidelines allow for things like claiming property in space. It's just one of those things that until someone has gone out to actually do it, we're not really going to be able to, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of governments are going to dedicate the time to think about it. For one thing, there are a lot of other problems that people have to focus on. <laughs> right, and, sure. And, and thinking about who owns that one section of the moon is not chief among them at this moment. No. And it should be because Transformers 3 Dark of the Moon tells us that on the far <laughs> side of the moon, there are robots, y'all, and we need to get over there. I just watched that movie. I also wanted to put in, uh, not related to Transformers at all. That, That's that, good because it's a terrible film. <laughs> I missed it somehow. No, um, you didn't miss it. You just didn't <laughs> see it. That, that all, that all of those, um, name a star oh, businesses, yes. those are not legit, y'all. Um, yeah. they, they, we're using y'all a lot this podcast episode. Um, Some but of so, us. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you, you, you cannot, you cannot name a star. Um, you cannot pay someone to name a star for you in any in kind any of scientifically 
official manner, right. right? That's unless you discover it, in which case you might be able to maybe. Yeah, usually stars at this point are named by uh, sort of a, a, a coordinate system, which well, is right, which is really useful to researchers and astronomers because right. that tells them where in the sky it is, which is great. Yeah, if you just say look for, uh, I claimed that star and I called it Frank. Look for Frank look for out Frank. there. That's like, not going to help. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so having the data built into the name is great. So yeah, um, the, the companies that do this, what they do is they have a massive database of all the stars and assuming that quote unquote they are legit and I put legit more huge legit quotation marks than other yeah. I don't know I guess yeah because yeah, because no matter what you're not really renaming the star but mm-hmm. if you've ever seen those like you know for 50 bucks you can name a star for you know give your sweetheart the gift of a star um what they do is they have this database, and if you pay them the fifty dollars, then you know, they, they will end up, put an entry in their Excel file, yeah, and next say, to whatever star, mm-hmm. and then you name it Frank. So mm-hmm. then they'll say that this star is now named Frank in our database. That, by the way, is the only place where it is renamed in that company's database. It has no official capacity whatsoever, right? Because anytime that a star is given an actual name that is not a set of coordinates, that is up to, and even, I think even the sets of coordinates are up to the International Astronomical Union. Yeah. Yes, the um, IAU. IAU, um, which which has a lot of very snarky things to say about this entire subject. Yeah, there's uh, a there's a whole fact where they actually talk about the guys. This is not this is not a legit thing. In fact, there are competing services out there, right? Right, right. That are selling the same star to multiple people. In fact, you might even have one service just. How do you know if if the star you got is truly unique in their database? Yeah. They might be like, hey, we can sell this one star and tell people that they've renamed it and it's the same one. I mean, why do we, we – or can, we just make one up if we want. We just make up coordinates and that's the star you've got. And, right, right. What, what you are really paying for with your $50 is a line in a database and a, a pretty piece of paper that they send you. And if that seems to you like a really good you know, expenditure of money, then – by all means, do it. Or but just, but just uh, be aware of that. Take, take a quick course in basic uh, PowerPoint presentation or Word, and then you can make your own certificate you and have could. it say whatever you want. Because as the IAU states, like true love and many other of the best things in human life, the beauty of the night sky is not for sale, but is free for all to enjoy. Aww. And and furthermore, yep. that that letting people name their own stars would generate a system of mounting confusion for no factual reason, which is the opposite <laughs> of what taxpayers pay scientists to do. Right. Yeah. So so that's so if you ever <laughs> have seen those ads about buying a a star to name it whatever you want, just know that that's that's not official in any in any capacity. Um, Although I will say that I I disagree with that. You cannot sell true love because well, that's a different podcast. We. We'll talk about that some other time. Huh? Okay. Um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, I also would not recommend that you buy property on the moon from right. lunar, lunar Embassy. I or anyone else. Um, yeah. I, you know, I can't say for sure, but I'm just extremely skeptical that that will ever pan out for you. See, and, and what's fun is that we're talking about something that's still off in the future, obviously. Yeah. We're not talking about something where anyone, no one has been able to make a lunar colony yet, right? So, so this is all hypothetical anyway. Uh, but the thing is, this is going to happen. And I, I, I hold that same skepticism, Joe. I do not think that one man's very possibly spurious claim on, on, on owning the moon is going to hold up that sort of, uh, that sort of development. But it will be interesting to see how the, the world reacts 
to that kind of thing. Because uh, I, I imagine that if the, a new treaty is drawn up, we are going to see some of the same language come up. Things like avoiding the weaponization of space, that sort of stuff. But other things, you know, talking about uh, being able to to uh, leverage the resources that we can find out in space for the benefit of people here on Earth. I mean, it's hard to argue against that. Certainly. Yeah. No argument here. All right. So um, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we've got this. We've got our own colony that we're planning. Uh, I don't know why we settled on Neptune. That sounds like it's going to be really difficult. But Well, but we won't need eyes to see where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. We also don't need roads. So yeah, we're gonna wrap this up because we gotta we gotta build our, our our colony on Neptune so that we can really claim it. Um, guys, make sure that you go visit fwthinking.com. That's the website where we have all our podcasts, our blog posts, our articles, our videos are all there. Uh, you can join in on the conversation. Remember, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus. The handle at all three of those is fwthinking, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.